Welcome to the Courtside Culture Podcast, where we talk about using communication and the power of positive psychology to build a great team culture. Hello and welcome to the Courtside Culture Podcast. I'm Dave Grinzinski and today we're talking with Dr. Dobie Moser. He is the director of CYO. That's the Catholic Youth Organization. He's a former college tennis player who was also a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee and co-director of the University of Notre Dame's Play Like a Champion Today National Coaches Training Program. Dr. Moser, let me first thank you for joining us here on the Courtside Culture Podcast. Well, it's my privilege, Dave. Happy to be with you. So now your background alone makes you a great guest for this podcast. But what really prompted me to reach out to you was an email that you sent out a couple of weeks ago about curbing the abuse coaches and parents are exhibiting towards referees. Now, we'll get to that in, you know, in, in a little bit and some other culture-related questions that I have. But the first question I have for you is, how did you get involved with sports way back in the day? So Dave, you know, I grew up, I was the seventh of nine children, four older brothers. And in our house, we did not have a lot of money in our home, but there was a lot of love. And my four older brothers just beat me <laughs> like a drum in every sport that we played. That's what we did. We all played at the playground. We played at the YMCA. And you could imagine the basketball got pretty rough at times. Um, any physical contact sports did. We had a ping pong table in the basement. And I just, as the seventh child and fourth youngest brother, I got beat all the time. And finally, when I went out and started playing against people my own age, I was like, wow, this is not so hard. Um, and, and it was fun. And it's not an exaggeration to say people would come to the house wanting more kids to play at the playground, whatever the sport was. And if one brother wasn't there, they'd just go to the next, go to the next, go to the next. So... I was, as a fourth brother, the hand-me-down brother, but I did get to play a lot with a lot of people, and I just found it to be fun and a great way to get to know people, and once I was hooked in that way, it never really left me. So then how did this foundation start you on the path to becoming the director of CYO? So it's interesting. I, I have extensive work with young people in youth ministry, in leadership and service. I think a great way to teach people, young people specifically, how to be leaders is by serving others. And in all of my connections with young people, the heart of any of these approaches is building relationships with kids and showing them in action, not just in word, that you care. And sports, because it is play, is a great way to have fun with kids, to help them discover and develop their talents. So it just kind of led me. I never let go of that sports foundation I had, and I used it, frankly, as a tool, as a method to connect with young people. And that led eventually to my being the director of CYO. Of course, there were quite a few steps in between, but it was that relational piece of a, a neat way to connect with kids. Well, I'm going to ask you specifically about your coaching days. But the first thing I want to ask you before we, we get into that is, so who along the way has greatly influenced your work in CYO sports? You know, I, I thank you so much for asking. I think that's a really key question. Um, it may be a surprising answer, but there's a gentleman named Dr. Paul Farmer. 
and he, there's a book about him I would strongly recommend, especially as we head into Lent, called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And it's not by him, but it is about him. But um, Paul Farmer just had this radical belief that every person was of equal value. And one of his quotes is that the thinking that some lives are uh, value less than other lives is the root of all that is wrong in the world. And that's a Paul Farmer quote. Well, his approach was everybody should have opportunities. Now, his work was in healthcare. Everyone should have healthcare because everyone is valued and made in God's image and likeness. So um, they are valued. So when I, that concept, and I've got to meet Dr. Farmer, and I share, uh, I'm going to make a quick plug because I, for your folks listening, I think they'll love it. There is a movie on Netflix called Bending the Ark that tells the story of Dr. Farmer and how they have provided health care to the poor in the poorest places around the world. And he died this at literally one week ago today at the age of 62. But his commitment, and I met him, it was one of the highlights of my life, frankly, that every person is of equal value and no person is of lesser value. He planted that seed in me. And I apply that in the world of athletics, whether it's saying it's why we have to have trained coaches. It's why every kid is guaranteed to play, because everyone is a value. And I want to use sports to help them know that. Well, and when we talk about building a culture, uh, whether it's a, a program, you know, and it doesn't have to be basketball. It could be, you know, it could, could be any sports program that you're building, you know, whether it's a program or even on your own team. I think to, to me, that should be the foundation of, of any program or, or any team, you know, to see the value in every single person on that team and find them a role. Amen, Dave. I mean, I could not agree with you more strongly. So that, you know, programs that favor only the elite, what is the message to the other children? And in youth sports, it is fundamentally wrongheaded because we're looking at kids from, you know, second grade, third grade, up through high school, who can look at a sixth grader and know what their future development is going to be? And the answer is no one. And that is why, in a very intentional way, we place the priority of child development over the priority of winning or winning championships. We are here to develop every child. And do we know what that's going to mean and look like? Absolutely not. But we are committed to helping do that. And the child, the parents, the coach, the family, the culture that you refer to, it needs to be an environment where every child can thrive, not just the elite athletes. I think one of the things that, that sort of molded my thinking is I actually helped with Special Olympics. And I know you were a coach for Special Olympics. And I helped, you know, summer. And I, and I, worked, I worked some camps um, over the summer. My brother and I, Camp Happiness with, with Special Needs Kids. And I think that, you know... You know, it's something I think everybody should maybe do, especially if you're a coach, just to, just to see. Can you talk about your approach with the kids and your work with Special Olympics? Dave, I love that you brought that up. I, a quick plug. Anybody out there, I recommend in life, do this at least once, go to a Special Olympics dance. Because when you do, and I've been to many of them, Talk about what a dance can be. When you walk into that dance area, 
everybody will dance with everybody because it's about fun. It's about being together. It's about belonging. Um, and yes, I did work for a number of years. That was early on my full-time work was adaptive physical education and it involves Special Olympics and just that idea of competing and inviting people, encouraging young people to give their best effort and that was the prize. And for some people that was actually a pretty high level of athletic achievement. For some, if you look from the outside, you'd say, good heavens, they didn't achieve anything athletically. But I would disagree and say they gave their best effort. They were part of something bigger than themselves. They were encouraged and loved and supported. They belonged on that team. And it was an outstanding experience. And if I had to put all of this under a rubric or a title, and it's the word that gets absolutely ignored all the time in youth sports, the key word would be play. It's not work. It's not championships. It's play. And I know, Dave, you know this, but the number one and two reasons why children begin to play sports is to have fun and be with friends. And what people don't recognize, those are also the one or two reasons why kids quit playing sports. It shifts along the way from being play to work. And it shifts along the way from building and supporting relationships to being only competition. And competition has its place. I, I get that. But it is not the centerpiece. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that that inclusiveness of sports, because, you know, and, we, and I've talked about it before on this podcast with, with other people. It's like, and as a matter of fact, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday and, and this topic came up. We're just talking about how, you know, just how serious sports has become. And it just it just seems like, you know, at a younger and younger age, you know, kids are being asked to. Uh, you know, just play one sport, really. I mean, you got a lot of coaches that say, oh, I like multi-sport athletes, but I'm not so sure they, you know, they really mean that. But, but you know, there, there's that part of it. But but the other thing is that that inclusiveness that is that is lost along the way. And what we were talking about yesterday is how, you know, you go to these tournaments and things like that, and you don't remember what game you won or what, you know, you know or you even, you know, you go through an old box and you're like, I don't even remember getting that medal. But what you do remember are the, you know, the the trips to the restaurants after the games, or the trip, you know, the you know, the the other little trips that you put together, or like the one I always love to bring up is when our entire basketball team, those knuckleheads, all tried to cram themselves in a hot tub at the same time, you know, and we have a picture of that, like like those to me, like that to me is what makes it, you know, it's that camaraderie, that inclusiveness that I think really gets lost when you start counting wins and losses, I think all that falls to the wayside. Right. And actually, I think, Dave, good coaches look at their children and the kids on their team and say, what can I do to help bring out the best in every child, every child on the team? And what can I do to help the teammates learn how to do that with each other? I mean, that if you want one of the definitions, I know there are many of being a coach, it's not that they're strategically brilliant, although certainly being smart about it helps. The more important value is, have I kind of developed and understand, do I understand the currency of each player in my team? What is it that makes them tick? That when I can connect with that, they're going to be more open to learning, more open to growing, and frankly, to really foster that so that the athletes bring out the best in each other. Like that is the definition to me of a good coach. 
Do you bring out the best in each child? And do you help each child bring out the best in each other? And what I love about that is they end up having a great time on the court and they're not thinking about me as their coach because they're focused on each other. And is that not what being on a team is? And I think it also makes them better players because I've talked to, uh, you know, even Dr. Gary Epler, who, who I've had on the podcast. You know, it, it comes down to, like, one of the things that I always try to tell my kids is when they're playing, don't think, just do. And so when they're out on the court and they're constantly looking over their shoulder at the coach because they're, you know, if they make a mistake and they're worried about getting pulled or, you know, or for whatever the reason is, if they're constantly looking over their shoulder, they can't focus, like you just said, on what they're supposed to do. And it, and it just, you know, it makes for a bad experience. Right. And actually, the uh, I think Dave would come to some similar conclusions, perhaps by different ways. My phrase on that that I use as a coach, frankly, is be here now, in the moment, not into what happens if we win or lose this game, not into the standings, not into who's scoring the most points. Be in the moment you are in and give that your full attention, and that will lead to the next moment. Not thinking of any of those other distractions, including, and I know you're aware of this, it's really painful when I go to games and I see kids that are on the court and they have one eye toward the coach and the bench and they're turning their head at other times to the stands to see what mom or dad is saying. And I would say for that child, they're not learning how to be here now, to be on the team, in the game, in their role. Why? Because their attention and energy is focused elsewhere. So you, I mean, not only did you did you coach with Special Olympics, but you were the head tennis pro at a camp and a resort in, in Toronto for five summers, and then also, you know, in in Chicago at a private club. So I'm, I imagine uh, there is probably some pressure on you to develop these kids. I, I'm I'm really uh, I'm I'm I want to come to understand like how did you establish a culture in those settings? Wow, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think I, I referred to it a little earlier, but it's true. It's by focusing on the relationships and genuinely caring about every child, regardless of their athletic success. So I did, didn't want the kids in our program, and frankly, I ran a lot of adult tournaments and clinics as well in those roles. Um, even in the adults, helping them realize that, look, you are valuable and you are cared about, whether you walk off the court winning or losing. I think what we need to name and is helpful for me to remember is, I think as adults we need to, and here's the line I'd encourage you to grab onto, it is reflection is what turns experience into insight and insight into intentional action. So literally teaching people the skill to reflect on their own experience, gain insight from it, and then take action based on that insight. As you can tell, it's a little bit of a chain that connects, oh, this happened. Well, wait a minute, what do I think about that? What do I feel about that? And as you made a reference to, it's not in the moment because in the moment you're doing, and that's what you need to be doing. But afterwards, giving people, whether it's, and again, in age appropriate ways with the language and methodology, but you want to do it in a way where they begin to learn how to coach themselves. That has always been central to my coaching approach is they should not be constantly looking 
at me for what do I think, what do I do, what's right, what's wrong, there'll be times I need to exert that. But when I'm doing my best coaching is when they have developed those skills and they are using them in practice and or a game and they are basically taking charge of their own growth and development. That is when I've done good coaching. If I'm the one constantly being looked to for all the answers, the best strategy, the only way to do it, you know, it may feed my ego, but it's actually, I think, poor coaching. Yeah, and it goes, and that's, you know, and that's what I'm kind of getting at here when I when I try to tell my kids, don't think, just do. You know, because when, when you're thinking too much, whether, like I said, whatever it is, if you're thinking at all, you're not going to be able to do it. And then once they get to that point where, right, I, I totally agree with that, you know, where you've done your job when they're to, when they're, when they get to the point where they can kind of rely on themselves, you've done your job. Amen. I'm there. <laughs> so let's talk about the email. You sent it out a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that, uh, that I, I always talk about here on the, on the podcast is what I call the PPC. Now, if you're a fan of the office, that's the party planning committee. But here on, on the podcast, it's parents, players, and coaches because it takes everybody to create a good culture. It takes all three facets. And so when I saw that email, you know, and, and the concern you had about the, uh, you know, and I, I will tell you, Dr. Moser, I, I've been to CYO games this year and I have heard stories. I've heard, I've heard p- people in the stands. I've heard from coaches that I, you know, people that I know that I, you know, would coach with uh, or, you know, just from my, my CYO days. Sure. But, but uh, I, I've heard the stories firsthand as well. And so let's talk about it. Like what prompted you to send that email? Well, Dave, I'll tell you what, it is the first time in my 26 years in this role that I use the language specifically in that email of abusive behavior, not just yelling at refs, not just complaining. Some of the behavior we have seen is abusive, and it needs to be named for what it is. And we have seen incidents this year where people have said awful things to officials, they've yelled at opponents' players, they've done some things that if, I think nine out of 10 people in the street walked in and saw the video and heard what was said and saw it, would say, wow, that is abusive. And that is my observation as well. And mind you, we already have a system in place where we take significant preventive actions with coaches certification and training, incident management systems, training of athletic directors, a operations manual. So we have preventive steps in place. We also have responsive steps in place so that when that person, whether it's a coach or a fan, steps out of line, there really are consequences. When they're ejected, they're not going to practices or games the next week. If it's a parent, they're not going to games the next week. In both cases, or an athlete, they have to have a come-to-Jesus sit-down meeting with the pastor saying why they thought it was appropriate to drop an F-bomb at a fifth grade game. So we do not sit on our hands and do nothing. And yet one of the changes I have seen in the last few years, and definitely this year, is when we address the behavior with the individual involved. In the past, the person would say, you know, I know I lost my call. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. What I'm getting now that is really, to me, shocking is they'll say, 
well, yeah, I did it because it was a bad call by the ref. Like, it's not even acknowledging the terrible and abusive behavior that they are doing. And I consider that very troubling. So that led me to send out the email saying, I want to be as clear as we can possibly be. This is abusive behavior. There is no place for it. And one of the analogies I use is, imagine being at school and your child's in fifth, sixth grade and you're watching a project where the teacher is there regulating the environment like an official does in a basketball game and something happens as the kids present the project that didn't go as they wanted. Can you imagine any of those parents screaming at the child, at the teacher, or using any expletive? And the answer is no. We would never do that because we know how fundamentally morally wrong it is. Well, it is the same way in a gymnasium with a scoreboard on the wall. It is wrong. It is never acceptable. I accept that refs make bad calls. Sure they do. Who among us does not make mistakes? But that response to it is totally unacceptable. Yeah, and would you, you know, and this is where what I always talk about, you know, when it's, because it's everybody. You're, you're, you're talking about, you know, not only, you know, you're talking about the refs because, you know, you're talking about the parents and, you're, you know, you're talking about the coaches. There, this, to me, it, it is so avoidable if, they keep in mind, and I, and what I love is you know the CYO and and what it's about, and it really it should be applied to you know whether it's rec leagues or travel clubs or right you know, ap- apply it to everybody. But but you you know the message is that coaches need to understand that the centerpiece of this is, and this this is I you know this is what I gleaned from. I, I listened, I, I I did my research on you, Doctor Moser. I listened to your interview on the Catholic Sports Radio. So that and, means I I have um I have cured your insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 no. But but it, but the thing is, it, the 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 centerpiece is the coach seeing athletics as a ministry by which to help young people. I don't think that type of behavior helps young people. Right on. I mean, and it, so there's a part of that, and thank you for mentioning it, is how, and that, this actually goes back, Dave, to the point I made about learning how to reflect on your own experience. So does the coach see sports as a ministry? What do I mean as a ministry? A way to develop young children, help them grow, and in a Christian context, help them grow as disciples of Jesus. So if as a coach, I see this athletics, CY athletics, and we teach this in all of our coaches' training, sports as youth ministry. It's a way to connect our faith in practice with young people. And if I understand that vision, then as a coach, that makes me a youth minister. And that makes the team a Christian community. You know, we have churches literally with hundreds of families and others with thousands of families. Within that, you have many small Christian communities. And in those small Christian communities, in that larger church, children or adults, they find the place where they belong, where people know their name, where they're cared about, and they learn, in a sense, the apprenticeship of becoming a Christian. So literally, I love that you pointed it out. So it's sports as ministry that makes the coach a youth minister and the team a Christian community. 
And that understanding, when people are losing their heads about winning or losing or cheating, it guarantees they're not seeing it as a ministry. They're seeing it as, I'm here to win championships, and that's the definition of success. And what I want to say to anybody out there in youth sports, when you have attached your ego to the athletic achievements of children right up through high school, my strongest recommendation is go see a good therapist because that is an absolutely unreasonable expectation. And frankly, that is saying more about your ego than about the child or the team that you are supposedly taking care of. You know, I learned years ago, a wonderful acronym for ego is edging God out. It's no longer about the children, no longer about the ministry, no longer about the team. It's about me. And look at me, I won a tournament, I won a championship. And again, I just want to say, I actually think for adults making that their identity, that borders on pathetic. One of the things that I learned talking to some very successful coaches on the high school level is that they actually look back on their early days of coaching when they first started out. And and I'll be honest, they, they're embarrassed when, when they think about the way they handled it because it took them, you know, a couple of years to, because they were so focused or they're young, you know, they're, you know, again, that ego gets in the way, you know, that young mindset and, you know, all they really focused on were wins and losses. But then along the way, they figured out to develop a program, to develop the kids. And even though you, you may not have five superstars on the floor at any given time, they're all working together and they're all winning. And these coaches are super, super successful. But it took, like you, like you mentioned, that reflection to, 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 to pump the brakes and say, look, this is not the way, you know, and the thing is typically when they're focused on wins and losses, the wins really aren't, you know, overtaking the losses, you know? And so, you know, I give the, I give these guys a lot of credit for pumping the brakes and reflecting, you know, to, to, to steal your word and, and looking at it and say, I need to change this. And they found that, you know, the, that development part of it, you know, is really what, what has made the difference. And, created that culture that culture is their foundation and that and you know and all of that leads to success right I agree strongly with everything that you said dave i think that the element that allows that change to happen and here's there's an amazing irony in this what do coaches do among the many things we do we teach skills and we try to get the kids to refine and develop the skills so well that as you say, in the game, they use them without thinking about what foot should I go off of on that layup. They just do it. Well, what I would say in response to your comment would be coaches themselves need that reflection skill. They need to stop and say, what did I do? How do I reflect so that I can turn my experience into insight? You know, I appreciate and I think you're right that many coaches, after doing it the wrong way, they have a... a aha moment and say, you know, there's something not working here. I Frankly, I'm less concerned about those coaches because they are reflecting and they're going to get it. But I am more concerned with the coaches that have made winning their ultimate and only goal and reflection still escapes them. They have an amazing lack of self-awareness and they actually do great harm 
great harm in the lives of kids on their teams. If you want the poster child for this, look at Bobby Knight. Anybody who wants to know, just watch the last days of night and that video because the abusive behavior in the name of winning is called abuse. And what you're teaching children is, or in that case, young adults, young men, you're teaching them what it is like to be in an abusive relationship. And I would say what is so deeply harmful is not just what he did to them on a basketball court, but what are those young men learning about relationships with colleagues, with a future wife? And they're learning how to be in an abusive relationship. And that's why we need to name those things. And I don't care how many championships a coach wins. Abusing people is always wrong. What would you say? And, and you mentioned a couple of things here. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what, what you pick out to be the most concerning thing you think in youth sports development. What do you think it is? Well, not new, and I know you've had to cover this many times, but I would say, I'm going to name a few. Number one is there is a pretty strong trend that has been going on for years now of a decline in young women playing sports. Girls are dropping out at a much higher rate. There used to be a time when girls playing basketball was higher than volleyball, and now, thanks be to God, a lot of girls are playing volleyball, fantastic, great sport. Um, the drop-off in basketball is really quite remarkable for girls. But overall, the big picture for girls is dropping out. And likewise, there's a big trend that has been going on for years that I know my work and many others' work is trying to change and address, where kids are burning out and dropping out of sports by grades 8 and 9. And I consider that a very concerning thing because that is actually when they should just be coming into their own. Not when they're saying, well, it's clear I don't belong in sports and it's not when I want to give something I want to give time to and energy to in my life. So the trend where kids are dropping out, and again, we know a lot of reasons, the pressure to win, the parents living through their kids and not allowing their kids to have their own experience. You know, the analogy I would give to you, Dave, is, you know, my wife and I have seven children. I've been to way more teacher conferences than I ever wanted to be at. I never said to a teacher, I can't believe we flunked a test because it's not my test. It's not my experience. So that idea where parents are putting that pressure on kids is very unhealthy. And it makes kids, it goes back to that whole fun and play thing. I can understand why some kids walk away because they look and say, you know, this used to be fun and it's feeling more and more like work and the pressure. I don't need that in my life. And that then has a negative effect on their physical health. I mean, among the wonderful benefits of play in sports is exercise. Well, when you don't play, you don't get that for a lot of people. So that is a, I would say there are others. And, you know, the behavior of driving officials out of the sports, definitely high in the list. But that larger trend of kids walking away and walking away at young ages, I believe should trouble us all. So what do you find? And I agree with you. I, I, I do have to say I was OK. I wasn't going to say it, but I said, but honestly, what prompted my conversation yesterday about um, uh, it was just a, a guy that uh, that had coached when I was coaching. I ran into him and we started talking. I said, I can't believe you're still doing this. You know, we start talking. And I said, well, how are your numbers? First thing he said, girls are down. 
So I totally back. I totally back your, you know, your, your claim there. And it just came up. This was yesterday. They said we're we're having we're we are the girls' numbers are dwindling, and that's what prompted our conversation about specialization early and things like that's what I said. I said, is it because you know they're all they're, you know they're picking their sport now in third grade because that's what everybody's telling them they have to do? But that's what prompted the discussion. So your concern is valid. Yeah. So so Dave, I just need to mention because you mentioned a few times the idea that um, that the pressure and the picking up sport early. I can tell you, check with any medical doctors in sports, it is absolutely harmful to the bodies of young people. So one of the very practical benefits of playing different sports, different seasons throughout the year is it develops a range of physical attributes and skills. It does not overuse, and actually they, that is what they call it, overuse injuries in sports where, and, and I just need to name, you know, it is easy to name the symptoms without looking below the surface at the roots. And the roots of that in youth sports, ironically, the primary root of that is money. So when you look at a lot of different programs out there, it is being driven by, hey, now you can play on a travel team, you can play on an AAU team, you can play a JO. It always has a price tag attached. And then you need a private coach, you need extra equipment, all of those things begin to make the sport less accessible to all children. So it becomes elite and exclusionary instead of inclusion, here comes everybody. Well, and then I think the parents feel the, the pressure too because it's like, well, they're doing it. I guess we have to do it. And, I, you know, the, 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 the price, you know, it, you, you don't even – you're going to pay anything to, you know, for, for your kids to, to be a part of it because you, you feel like you're, they're going to fall behind, you know, and I, that, this is where I think, I mean, to me, and I, like I mentioned, the parents, players, and the coaches, the PPC, I, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, this is an, this is my aha moment. Thank you, Dr. Moser. But I mean, I think that's what it is. Parents are spending so much money on this stuff. You know, it's like, I think that's what fuels, you know, the, this anger that comes out of them sometimes, maybe. I don't know, you know. Well, actually, I appreciate this. I had a lengthy conversation, unexpected. We had a break between games. I was at weekend games all weekend. And I had a 45-minute conversation with two wonderful officials. And... They, I asked them, I said, tell me about your experience, both with CYO and in other leagues, because they ref in other leagues too. And they, they named what I actually think was a symptom, and they called it entitlement. You know, I deserve to win the championship. Our team deserves the best opportunity. And I heard that, and one of my pushbacks to them, and it, it's a, a nuance of that, I would say, Dave, is this. You just said it so well, but I invested all this time and money and we're traveling and our family's inconvenienced. And I actually call it, it's ROI. It's return on investment. And part of what that's about is, damn it, I put in all this time and all this money and we didn't even win a trophy. We didn't get paid back for the money we put out. And again, no parent thinks that heading in because that would be pathological. <laughs> <laughs> but when but when we begin to invest so much and begin to think, what am I getting back? What parent in their right mind would say, I'm having a child to see what they give back to me? That really is pathology. We raise children to give them life, to give them hope, to give them their own life. 
and let them know that they're made in God's image and likeness. They're beautiful as they are. And yet, I do think, you named it, put in all this time, put in all this money, and those reps are blocking my child from getting a trophy. What that is really saying, it's not about the child. It's about the parent saying, I want a return on my investment, and the return I want is that trophy. Yeah, and when really the return is all the things we talked about, the you know the the non sports related things, the camaraderie, the you know learning to deal with people and you know handle different situations and think on your own and like that's the payoff in the end. Would you agree? Right on. I mean, that, those are the things that you know. So in the Catholic Church, certainly in other Christian churches and even other religions, you often hear that comment and that understanding of we're a community, and that is certainly we want the team to be that. And many people say, what is a community? It's everybody on the same page, going in the same direction together. I would say that's part of the definition. I have a slightly different definition, and it, it would be this. Community means that we have the love and care for that person on the team, in the church, that annoys us the most, because they also belong. <laughs> in other words, it's not just picking our favorites and being exclusive. It's actually welcoming everyone, including that person that we're not as fond of, and saying, you know what, they're part of the community too, and we're not going to exclude them. And Dave, this is definitely an older guy now and the gift of life. I would say one of the things life has taught me, as soon as that person that annoys me leaves the community and I think, all right, they're gone, guess what, another one replaces them. <laughs> So that has made me realize maybe it's not about what bothers me about them. Maybe I need to look at the mirror and see what's going on with me. That's some good advice. I mean, I think we can all use that. Now, as we as we round third and head home here, let's, you know, I, I we, we've gotten into a lot of, you know, I mean, we talk about the negativity and how to how to change it. But what are you most hopeful for as you look at youth sports? I would say a number of things. One would be we have so many good coaches who love kids and they're in it for the right reason. And you can see the kids just having a blast um, and the coaches having the blast regardless of their record. And I just want to be clear, that is absolutely the majority. And that gives me great hope because they keep stepping up, showing up, speaking up to doing it the right way because Part of building a culture is what we do here. And the fact is, we have so many good coaches and good people doing it the right way. I want to make sure we celebrate and support them and not give all of our attention to the negatives. That would be one. I think the growing awareness of the need for coaches to be trained. I mean, I I have the privilege from time to time I've been invited to meet with other dioceses when they look at the Diocese of Cleveland CY, which I want to be clear, the credit for what happens here does not belong to me. It belongs to the thousands of gifted coaches, the committed parents. We have a marvelous staff. You know, my role is particular and I need to be in that role, but I have no illusions. It is all those good people upon whom I stand. But I think that the hopefulness of people who want to do it the right way, who want to make it accessible to as many children as possible, they're the vast majority. And we need to celebrate them. We need to hold them up as the example. They are the culture that we strive for. And I think 
I love that. And every time I go out, I end up saying thank you, thank you, thank you to parents, to coaches, to officials. They're in it because they love kids and they want to do this the right way. And I have to admit, you know, I am a, I'm a stubborn Irishman. And part of that means that I'm not going to let the small percentage that want to spoil it and ruin it and make this about them and their egos ruin it for the rest of us. And at this place in time, God said, hey, you're here, do your part. And I try to faithfully do that. So I don't want to totally put you on the spot, but I, if, if there are people who, who listen to this and maybe want to get in touch with you and, and talk to you maybe a little bit more about you know, how they can maybe institute some of the things that CYO is doing, you know, in, in their programs or maybe some of the coaching training or, or just, I mean, all of the advice that you're sharing here today, maybe just to hear a little bit more from you. Is there a way somebody could, could reach out to you? Sure. And I'll just give my email. It's G as in Greg, D as in Doby, M-O-S as in Sam, E-R, at C-C, D-O-C-L-E, that's for Catholic Charities Diocese of Cleveland, ccdocle.org is my email. They're welcome to do that. I can tell you, we are privileged to have a gifted staff and so many good people in CYO. I often give away our resources to anybody else who wants or needs them because we want every kid in every place to have an opportunity to have good experiences. If we can contribute that out of the richness of what we have, well, there's nothing noble about that. I, call, I consider that a responsibility. Well, what's encouraging is if a knucklehead like me can find you and, and get you on the podcast, then there are a lot of the smarter people out there will be able to get a hold of you if they need to. Now, one of the things, and you know this, one of the things I love to do before, before I cut you loose, I always like to play what's the coolest, and, and we do first things last. And being a tennis player, I'm very curious. I, was, I want to see where you're going to go on this. What's the coolest place you've ever ever played, coached a game, or watched a game even? What's the coolest place you've ever played, coached, or watched a game? Love the question. Thank you. Um, so I had, during my four summers in college and one summer afterward, I was a teaching pro and then the head pro up at Manitou, a place up north of Toronto, as you mentioned. And it was a camp on one side and a resort on the other side. Well, I end up being the head pro at the camp, and I love the camp. It was a wonderful thing. I have lifelong friendships from that experience from our staff. It was just a great experience. But there was one court on the uh, resort side for the adults. That, that, the, that court, the surroundings of it were so beautiful and idyllic. Just being on that court almost made your heart at peace. <laughs> You know, so whether I played well, whether I played poorly, it was just like being in this gorgeous place. How could you not have a good time? And the funny part, so I, I was there five summers. I have a brother that was there, I think, for two because we played on the same college team. And playing an older brother is a psychological torture, I can just say. And the last time he and I ever played each other in singles was on that court up in Canada, and we split sets. And I remember, I don't know who won the first or second, but we split those two sets. And he's like, well, what are we going to do with the third? And I said, I'm not doing anything. I'm done. I cannot, you know, like, this court is beautiful. It's been good, but I can't get into family, you know, 
favorites in birth order. Let's just leave it at that. But that chord has always held a special memory for me just because it's beautiful and it was so peaceful. I just love playing on it. That's awesome. Is there is there a play? Do they have a is there a website or something where people can go and look at you know get a look at the court? You know what? It's it's changed ownership different times, and it, so I'm not current with that at all. I'm sorry. I just it was in the past and an amazing gifted part of my past, but no. So I'm not current on that. I don't know what's happening up there. Well, that's why I, I love asking that question because the answers are so different. Just like now, the last thing we always do is our list of first first things last. So, Doctor Moser, what was your first car? Uh, a Ford Granada, and it was badly used. And Granada, it, the word might closely be connected with grenade. <laughs> and it, yeah. <laughs> How about first record or cassette? I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm a record guy. I, my my first thing I bought was a record, but I mean, first record or cassette. Boy, that goes back way too long. I just say this: I was and still am a Springsteen fan, <laughs> and. Uh, there's so much I like about his message and music. Um, so, no, I can't remember the me- – I do remember this, though. It's funny. Kids I coached and young people I worked with back in the cassette day, and Dave, I don't know your age, this may relate or not, they would give me cassettes with their favorite songs that they wanted me to listen to. Huh. And I loved it because it introduced me to their music, and some of it was just great music. So – but again, cassettes um, are in the dustbin of history at this point. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I feel I know exactly what, what you're talking about. I mean, it's awesome that they're giving you mixtapes. But driving the kids, you know, that's the, that's the thing, you know, when you're a coach and you're driving kids all over the place. Like, like I would put on their music, you know, so they so they can listen to it and, and I don't feel comfortable. And so, like, even even into the high school days, like, you know, I know who Boogie Wood a Hoodie is and, you know, right. I know, you know, the baby and all these guys, I, you know. And honestly, I got to tell you, I like some, like, you know, I like some of the songs. I like some of the music. You know, it, it's funny, uh, Dave. Part of the, some of the, one of the things I do with just some training work is a, an evening session called Parenting at the Speed of Life. <laughs> And and I do that because just to help parents know that, look, if, if you're a parent, and this applies to sports parents as well, here are the two things you need to embrace, embrace that can send you, I think, on a helpful path of parenting. And those two things would be vulnerability and humility. Meaning any of us that thinks we have it figured it out, at some point you're going to get that fo- phone call and say, well, my kid would never. Well, at, at some point, you learn never to say that phrase because my kids surely have done things that I don't know where their brain was that day. But you know what? They're kids and they do those things. And then humility. We just have to be open to our own brokenness. And I actually think people can connect with brokenness because we all have some experience of what that means in our own lives. So that idea of embracing it, accepting it and learning and growing from it. It's funny I have found when you talk about car trips with kids, whether they're our own kids driving around to practice or whatever, or team situations, which I certainly have done, um, you know, that idea of quality time with kids, that is one of the craziest myths I have ever heard. Because in my experience, it's not about quality, it's about quantity. We actually have to be in their space and be there with them 
so that they know when they want to talk about things, when they want to share about things. And as you say, it's funny. A lot of times it has been on a team drive or in a car with our own kids. And for me, frankly, it may be the most inconvenient time. But because you're there, you're showing up and you care about them, they decide they want to share. Well, the whole quality time myth, nobody can predict when that's going to happen. It's not within our control, it's within their control. And that allows them to approach us because they know we are loving and caring adults. And that's what I strive and I know we all strive to be. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Dr. Moser, it's so funny how, and, and I would joke with other parents because, you know, guy, other parents that I that coached and we would drive the kids, you know, to wherever, the field or the gym or whatever. But like, you get them in the car and I, I, I don't know why, but they forget that you're there. I would learn right. so much about what was going on in their lives in those car rides because apparently they thought they were in a limo with the with the with the divider up and I couldn't hear them <laughs> but but like and, and, and other parents have said the same thing it's just great you know but I love it you know it, it, it was you know it's never anything bad but like you find out about you know things, something happened at school or whatever or something you know we, we ate this at lunch I mean it could be something that simple but it's just like it's the stuff that if you ask them directly you know what did you eat for lunch you be like, I don't know you know nothing really <laughs> you know that right, would be so- the answer Right. So, Dave, you know, I know it sounds simple, but I I have learned to name those and I actually call them holy conversations because you don't know when they're going to happen, but they only happen because it's you're there and you're present. And, you know, there's some really valid research out there. I know there's not time to get into it, but what the research says is every young person needs to have at least three caring adults in their lives who know who they are, know what their interests are, check in with them to see how they're doing. And I want to share that because it's really critical after two plus years, well now, moving into three years of a pandemic, that they know by name somebody cares for them. And what the research says is when they have at least three caring adults, they have a much higher level of resilience and a much better chance of doing well and not getting into harmful behaviors. So those are holy conversations. And what I mean by that, that child is made in God's image and likeness. You and I have this amazing privilege that we've been invited into that space. So we honor them and enter the space. And God makes happen what God makes happen. That's way above my pay grade. No, that's a. I mean, that's a. To me, that might be the takeaway from from our talk today. I mean, when you when you are a coach or you know you know parent, like if you're if you, I mean, you you think about that and maybe strive to make sure you are one of the three. Be one of the three. That I mean, that that to me is the slogan, right? And be one of the three for any child, right? You know, so in CYO, what when they do the coaches' meetings, the way that we support our folks. We say to them, the key question on the front end is, what do you hope for your child? Which every parent can easily answer. But the one that kind of changes the conversation is, what do you hope for every child? And that goes back to good old Dr. Paul Farmer and bending the arc that no child is of less value than any other child. We love them all. Now this is the first time First Things Last has ever spawned another interview, <laughs> but <laughs> right, so you, you got you can add that to your resume. But uh, but here we'll, we'll end on this, and, and let's let's talk about like what what was the first concert you had ever gone to? Because I'll tell you, the Springsteen response surprised me. So what was your first concert? 
Boy, um, it's funny. And again, I'm aging myself, but it was a Harry Chapin concert. I was in college and Harry Chapin was performing acoustically. He was a folk singer, but his music was very much involved with feeding the hungry. That was kind of his life's passion. So my then girlfriend and I got tickets at IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And the seats we got, I thought, I came back saying, hey, these are great seats because it was in the third row. Well, I didn't pay a close enough attention. They were at the far right end of the third row. And there was a very large speaker between where he was sitting and performing <laughs> and our seat. So literally, you could not even see the stool that he was going to be sitting on. And I'm looking at this thinking, well, now I know why those seats were available. But I, I had the guts. I kind of went up to a stagehand and I said, I've got this issue. And I pointed it out to him. He said, well, let me get back to you. And right before the concert, we, I mean, it, they had no obligation to change it. I'm the one who bought the ticket. The gentleman came back to me. And apparently Harry Chapin kept some middle, like right in the second row, in the middle, some tickets that he would give out to friends or anybody that he wanted to give them out to. And he had two extra. So this stagehand came out, gave us the two tickets. We got to sit right in the middle, in the second row. Love the music of Harry Chapin. And that woman is now my wife. That is an awesome story. Wow. And see, that always it doesn't hurt to ask, right? Amen. That is a great way to end this episode. Dr. Moser, I can't thank you enough for coming on and just and being so honest and, and forthright with the you know what what you're seeing in youth sports today and, and what you're so hopeful for. Well, thank you, Dave. It's been a privilege, and God bless you, and God bless your listeners. We we all need to be on board to make this what it can be, and please do your part. Remember, folks, if you know a good coach or somebody like Dr. Moser who's just doing good things with kids in youth sports or, or anywhere, really, and it doesn't even have to be sports, let us know about it. We love to get them on the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, at CourtsidePod1, and Courtside courtside culture podcast thank you so much we'll see you next time thank you for joining us on the courtside culture podcast and remember build the good in your players instead of focusing on repairing the bad find your players a role each and every one of them and take them from good to great we'll see you next time